Welcome to Microdose Psychedelic Insights, powered by The Conscious Fund. This is the Sci-Fi series, discovering the cutting-edge science and research in psychedelic medicine. Thank you, everybody, for joining us once again. This is another episode of the Sci-Fi Podcast, where we talk to leading industry clinicians, researchers, and experts to unravel the mystery that is psychedelic science. And today, we have Jackie Salm of Silera Biosciences. Thank you so much for joining us, Jackie. Yeah, thank you for inviting me. Absolutely. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about yourself and uh, you know why you're here today to talk to us about psychedelics? Sure. I So I actually started, um, I think I was only 19 when I started natural products chemistry research. And that really just means I wanted to study all of the chemistry that the various organisms around the world from microbes to marine organisms and what kind of compounds they were creating and why. There's a lot of chemicals that are created really more for communication purposes, almost like we have language. Um, and that's what really got me interested initially and did a lot of different drug discovery in infectious disease and antibiotics research and a lot of other fields. Um, but Eventually, I started to get a lot more interested in more of the neuroscience side and sort of the mental health arena. And that was largely driven by I have a long history of random addictions and um, dementias and that sort of thing. So it started to become very apparent to me through my drug discovery process that, that there was just a huge gap in medicine for this whole field. So um, that's what kind of led me this direction. That's really fascinating, and I think it's a really uh, it's really cool to see the uh, revival of psychedelic science, you know. And it's really cool to be at the at the forefront of all of that. So it would be really yeah. cool if you could share with our audience, you know, what inspired you to work with psychedelic medicine in the first place, you know? Yeah. So I was doing a postdoc after my PhD in Vancouver, and I got to experience a lot more of the opioid epidemic than I had seen really in Florida. So I'm originally from Florida and um, we, we everywhere has issues, right? But um, it just wasn't as much in your face as it really was in Vancouver and certain parts of that city. And I think that along with uh, my father was diagnosed with a really rare form of frontotemporal dementia during my PhD that continued to progress right around that same time I was doing my postdoc. And then I also, at the same time, somehow it was just like a culmination of things. My uh, older sister started to have a lot of issues with alcohol addiction. And so I think between, you know, I had this first moment of seeing people in the streets doing just all of the drugs you can think of right in front of you, wherever they could, whenever they could, um, in Vancouver, on top of my dad and my sister and kind of all these different things happening at once, I... I knew that that's where I wanted to be, um, that I wanted to find out better ways to handle a lot of these things because um, there's just not a lot of resources and there's not a lot available. And I feel like it was so much more difficult than it should have been for me to try and find ways to um, figure out how to help. So that really dragged me back to Florida and <laughs> into um, actually originally the cannabis industry and then now more of the psychedelics industry. Really fascinating. Sorry, give yeah. me one second. My dog keeps scratching at the door. Oh. <laughs> yeah, okay. 
<laughs> That's really fascinating. I'm going to pick up where you left off in just a moment. I'm going to make a note of this time point. Oh, it's okay. I didn't hear it, so I don't. Yeah, maybe I should just let it keep scratching at it. <laughs> oh, <Okay>. no. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, that's really that's really interesting. Your the, the experiences in your life, uh, experiences that helped. I'm going to start over. That's really interesting, the life experience that helped bring you, uh, you know, to the forefront of psychedelic research and medicine. Uh, it's really interesting. We're working on a documentary right now at Microdose. That's uh, mm -hmm. kind of a commentary on this intersection of mental health and addiction and um, psychedelic medicine around the around the world. And the next uh, phase of the documentary is going to be shot in Vancouver. And it's actually going to be focusing oh, on the yeah. opioid epidemic, actually, you know. Uh, yeah. Patty Hodge do the, the health minister of Canada is trying to keep the I think injectable opioid program in Alberta open, you know, because they're trying to close that, which would be a huge blow to a lot of people there, you know, because right. it's, uh, it's huge for harm reduction. Of, and uh, a lot of drug policy right now just is not, is diametrically opposed, not just not aligned with the science and the research. Yeah, it's really, and it, I don't know, we all, I feel like, love to talk about sort of why it's treated a certain way or why maybe it's looked at a certain way. And it's just, there are so many reasons why. And it's just a culmination of kind of our entire almost societal viewpoint at this point of certain things. And it's it's so difficult to try and then rid something that's almost become systemic in an environment. I mean, as we know with a lot of other fields as well, but it's it's just become so almost acceptable to treat others partially just because of what they're going through. And I I think it's going to be a hard thing to um, try and really get rid of. But I also think that it's just going to take, you know, all of sort of our generations and maybe some better emotional intelligence along the way to really try and um, actively um, help the world see it differently. But yeah. Uh, I think that's I think that's true. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your academic work and uh, you know the work that you're up to now, specifically in the space? Yeah. So we, um, while I was working in the cannabis industry, um, we started to do a lot of research about all of the different types of chemistry produced by the different plants and what patient outcomes were happening from there. And so Florida has a unique. Uh, vertical integration. That's actually a requirement. So you go everywhere from seed all the way to selling the product to the patient. So um, I was the director of research and development. So it was, I had to be part of every aspect of that process, even through production and manufacturing, and then even working with patients. And I think that whole industry really helped revive the world's idea of natural products chemistry, which was my entire background and everything I had worked for for a long time. Um, and so as a natural products chemist, it was sort of natural for me to say, okay, well, this industry is really helping everyone recognize the potential of natural products and what those can do for them. However, because of other aspects of the industry, I would say that the research and a lot of the really in-depth medical side of it got hindered quite a bit. And um, I just really wanted to be able to jump into the mental health space, whether, whether it be through cannabis or some of the psychedelics was, I wanted it to be done in a more medical route. And that was only, and it's not, has nothing really to do with, you know, big pharma or any of those sorts of things. For me, it was really more about the idea that if a patient has an extreme condition, 
they need something consist consistent and sustainable and it needs to help them regularly and predictably. And right. that was really tough sometimes in the cannabis industry. There was just so many options and so many things everywhere that when you finally had a patient with a really serious ailment that needed a really consistent product, it was tough to find sometimes. So right. um, I think I also, again, have a personal attachment, especially to addiction and different forms of dementia. And I also could see that some of the alcoholism that was from my family, I felt like cannabis sometimes was almost a crutch um, rather than necessarily really healing what was much deeper in them that was causing them to want to escape or causing them to want to go to something that became an addiction. And so I really wanted to get down to more of the root of the cause. And I feel like psychedelics really do that in a way that not much of anything else can. And we don't really know why. <laughs> we don't like to talk about maybe why. But um, so that's part of the mystery and the excitement is, well, why are they doing these things? And, you know, how can we help make it into that consistent medicine or that that outlet for someone without it being an addiction level outlet? It can be something to help them kind of work through everything and really come out of it with something different. Um, and I I think that um, for us specifically at Silera, it's our focus is more on the psilocybin and DMT derivatives. And that's one because they have very good safety profiles. Um, we are big on trying to reduce whatever you can as like any sort of side effects or um, toxicity that some things might have. Um, but also there are some of the few molecules that when you look at some of the recent neuroscience data, they you don't really seem to form much of a depend, um, tolerance to DMT, which is wild and trying to figure yeah. out you know, why that is. Um, but also you have even at sub what they consider sub psychedelic doses, some of these compounds are still um, have the desired outcome that you want to see in some of the neural networks and some of the brain. So. Uh, we really wanted to focus on those scaffolds and they're also unique because you can make just one tiny little change, just one atom difference and completely throw off how it acts on the brain. And so um, that really intrigued us as well to really understand what those little changes might be. And if there's a potential to make a change that um, could be beneficial. Um, we love natural products. Again, we are, <laughs> I, I love them, but unfortunately sometimes they're almost meant to be inside the cell of the animal that they come from and that's their cozy spot. And then as soon as they come out into the world, they tend to break down as soon as they see light, oxygen or heat. Right. <laughs> so trying to make uh, more stable compounds or medicines that can sit on a shelf for a long time and you don't have to um, change it every week or two would be desirable. So. You brought up so many interesting points and relevant <laughs> points to this industry from like the supply chain to the differences in research and right. between uh, cannabis and, and psychedelics. And I think that's such a fascinating point you make, you know, because a lot of people are trying to draw parallels between cannabis yeah. and, and psychedelics. And that's that makes sense. I understand. It's understandable. Um, but one of the big differences, you know, is our understanding of, of the 5-H T2A receptor, you know, the ser that right. subfamily, the serotonin, is so deep and profound compared to the fact that endocannabinoid system isn't even part of like traditional medical school curriculums yet, you know, which is right. so opposite, you know, it's so opposed and so polar in the amount of research and attention that they get. 
Um, but that's an interesting yeah. thing, thing too that you bring up about how psychedelics seem to have this lasting effect, you know, um, mm -hmm. even at, at sub psychedelic and, and sub perceptive doses. Um, mm -hmm. And and I think it's so interesting that you we we need don't necessarily need to use them repeatedly. You know, uh, cannabis right. in many ways does become a crutch because of the way it it's kind of used as a band aid versus a lot of these help address the the core uh, root of our problems. Right. Yeah. And I, again, I, I was in the cannabis industry for years and um, have been exposed to it my entire life, like many other people. Right. I think that there are great things that it is capable of. And I think that it can really help a lot of people. Um, but I think that personally, at least, I really like to pay attention to how different even certain compounds are within the psychedelic space itself. And they are very different from cannabis as well. I mean, they all have different compounds, different receptors, different things that they're doing on the body. And I know that as, I guess, the sort of the human way of thinking about it is we want to say, well, all of these things were kind of put into this bubble of bad drugs for a long time. So we're all just kind of keeping them in a similar bubble when we when we come into the world of psychedelics and cannabis, when really they all deserve their own separate branch completely and they all really deserve attention in different ways and i think that that's going to be something that's important for everyone to distinguish because you do have groups working on ibogaine therapies and lsd therapies and psilocybin and dmt and you have mdma obviously they're all very different compounds and how they act on the body and right. i i think that that's important to pay attention attention to and not always just say well we have this umbrella of psychedelics and i like keeping that synergy there though, because it helps everyone kind of work together and try to help bring these things to patients. And I, I do enjoy that aspect of keeping those together. Um, but I think when it comes to the, the medical side, they really can be very different, so. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I wrote a piece recently for Greenflower Media and it discussed how there is Kind of a school of thought that cannabis has maybe failed to deliver on its clinical promise to maybe treat cancer you know or you know, do a lot of the things that people claim it can do you know and and i i feel like a possibility of why that's the case is because of the nature of cannabis and the entourage effect and the fact that it's so yeah. not doesn't fit in the single molecule paradigm that it's so complex, you know, whereas <laughs> yeah. psychedelic medicine, I mean, sure, mushrooms might have a mycological entourage effect and there's different strains and right. there's a whole plant element to that as well. But psychedelics by and large fit into our traditional uh, paradigm yeah. drug discovery a lot more effectively than, than cannabis does. Absolutely. You know, and yeah. that might be a reason why that it's it's really our understanding that's limited, you know, about and, and, and maybe why some in some cases it can really benefit people beyond maybe placebo, you know, uh, um, and, yeah. and kill cancer cells and something like that. But we haven't understood the mechanism why, because it's just so such a complex signaling system that we also know so little about. <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, it's true. And we so before. Um, a couple of years ago, we had decided to work with a professor at the University of South Florida um, that we actually did our PhDs with. Um, I keep saying we, sorry, Chris, you did the- Yeah, 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 Chris. Thinking like, oh, well, you know him. So yeah, you're your co-founder, so yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah. He, uh, so either way, um, the professor at USF, along with a very well-known synthetic chemist here, they had reached out and asked, well, we really want to apply for a big 
National Institute of Health grant, trying to really assess all of the different aspects of the cannabis extract, whether it be the terpenes and terpenoids, cannabinoids, flavonoids, there's so many different compounds in there working Asters, together. Yeah. And so um, we still are ac actively consulting on some of those kinds of grants and research endeavors because we, we very much believe in them. And we know we've dealt with patients directly on some of the products we've developed for delivering different cannabis extracts, but also some of the more purified distillates and other things. And we know we've seen positive patient outcomes depending on um, the type of ailment. So there's something there. It's just, it's, it's not going to yeah. be easy to figure out. I don't think. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be really fascinating to see as we unlock uh, different methods of testing and techniques of research, you know, I know mm -hmm. they're using AI and some people are starting to really, yeah uh establish a more of a quantum model you know of, of molecular yeah. discovery and design um, than this very singular approach yeah and we're trying to so with silera now when i say we um the one of the things is because of the natural products background there is interest in some of the different compounds coming from various mushroom um, strains and whether or not you can modify some of those things and see the different chemistry that comes out. Um, and, and that would be more of the, what I would call traditional, what has become the entourage effect and in natural products, we always just said the synergistic effects for a long time. And um, that would be from the more chemical perspective, I think, like what the compounds are and what the different compounds are doing to work together to create an effect. Um, the thing that we're really interested in with some of the uh, psilocybin DMT types of scaffolds is maybe looking at a more entourage type effect from the receptor perspective. So we really think that a lot of the psychedelics are acting on various serotonin and other receptors in different ways and in different affinities and whether or not maybe the various affinities of those compounds is actually what's then leading to the differences in some of the effects you're seeing. Um, so we are trying to do actually some computational modeling with some collaborators and do a little bit of more, I would call it a slightly academic endeavor, but um, yeah. I also think that it has the potential to have a lot of good outcomes when it comes to sort of that old idea of you have this one ligand and this one receptor and when they come together, you have this effect. And <laughs> it's like, right. I think it, there's a lot, unfortunately the human body seems to be a little <laughs> bit more complicated than that. Um, so we're Just really interested bit. in that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, that's it's it's crazy, you know, how far we've come from our very old, simple limiting paradigms. Uh, okay. The central dogma for biology used to be DNA, RNA, protein. Yeah. You know? I mean, it is so much more than that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's putting it lightly. Uh, so, and that's just that's the exciting thing about science, though. You know, is that we're always yeah. this is always more between the lines, and it's very subtle and nuanced, but also infinitely complex. And that's just that's just part of how it goes. So that's it is. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So what I think. Oh, sorry. I was just going to no. say, I think it's going to lead to some really interesting shifts in what we see as medicine though. That's at least my hope. Uh, that's really our goal is really trying to help sort of change the view on how some of those things work and um, what really we need to be looking at and paying attention to when trying to bring medicines to patients. And mm -hmm. I think obviously MAPS and Encompass and a lot of the other groups that um, are bringing these compounds to the market really with the psychological and um, therapist aspect and being actively part of it. I think 
that's a good start. Unfortunately, the the therapy side and the psychiatry side also needs a lot of work. Right. That we see there, but I think that um, we're at least aware of it, and I think everyone actively, at least anyone who's part of this space, is very aware of it and wants to make that better and keeps it in the forefront of their mind to recognize that there's some limitations. So I think that that's at least the first step, right? We're no no longer in denial. We have to at least start actively working on it. Yeah, that's super cool. I I just remember that you said that really cool thing about you're looking at the entourage effect from the receptor standpoint. You know, that's really, that's really fascinating. I don't think uh, (laughs) anyone's really, I haven't heard heard put it that way before, but I understand what you mean by that. And it kind of speaks to the bigger point of the psychedelic toolkit is going Mm -hmm. to be so robust and versatile and colorful, you know, and it's also different, you know, and it's just like, it's not just about the serotonin receptor and it's not just a lock and key. It's not that simple anymore. And then we have a, just as those drugs differ, the modality of therapy and the way the clinicians have to be trained is all going to be different. And MDMA therapists Mm -hmm. are going to be nothing like a psilocybin therapist. Maybe some ways they'll be similar, but there'll be market differences. Yeah. And I mean, yeah, because MDMA, I mean, that's, it's a phenethylamine. Like when I think about right. it, like I, yeah. I get heart palpitations when I take Mucinex D. Like when I take, <laughs> you know, I'm one of those people that anything that has any kind of sort of adrenaline aspect to it right. is pretty hard. So I think um, that's a very different feeling and a very different outcome. And I think that there are going to be people who are way more receptive to that then they will be right. to something like psilocybin or DMT. And I think it'll work vice versa. There's there's right. different people. We all have different minds and different bodies and human conditions. And I there's no one size fit all. We learned that a long time ago, especially with pharmaceuticals. There's no one pill that's going to save the world. And mm. I um, I love this. I heard, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but Husseini Manji, he runs the neuroscience department for Johnson & Johnson, the big pharmaceutical. And he I had read an interview with him at one point because he actually used to work for the National Institute of Health, um, was pretty academic beforehand. And he had this line that I hadn't really thought about much. I guess I always knew it, but I hadn't really contemplated it. And he said, what drugs are there right now that we have that you just take once and it solves everything? And and I think that that's one of the issues, especially with the psychedelics world, as it's trying to come into the medical scene is a lot of people saying, well, that's just not going to cure anything. And I think the idea of a cure has to change too. Like we, we have to actively work on all of these things. It's part of the whole mind, body health side of it too. Right. Mm -hmm. These are going to be things that sure. It might be frustrating and it might take effort and it might be hard sometimes, but we have to actively work through some of our issues, whether it be mental, physical body and, um, I think that that's important, too, for as we change how we see medicine is it's something to help us through whether or not it's a one time or throughout my life thing. It's something that if you want to do it, then it's hopefully benefiting you in some way. And right. I mean, so I have a thyroid condition and I have to take medicine for the rest of my life. Do I want to take hormones for the rest of my life? Absolutely not. But right. do I want to not go into a coma? Yes. Yeah, and so I think we have to start thinking, too, about mental health that way. It's like I have a very obvious hormonal imbalance that they can see and they can quantify and they can say we need to fix this here. 
unfortunately, mental health is not exactly a quantifiable thing. And it's going to take a lot more effort to find the best ways to treat people. Yeah, you're right. And uh, mm-hmm. a lot of what has to change, too, is what our definition is for success in some of these yeah. treatments and outcomes. You know, I know for addiction, that's a big one, you know, just because you know, a lot of times harm reduction yeah. and, and the fact that they're living a healthier lifestyle uh, is a huge success, you know. And yeah. I know if, if we look at it in a very one or zero black or white, like, oh, are you completely absent or not? You know, uh, it, it kind of breaks down, you know, and then yeah. we have we have some of the issues that we have today. And it's like, you know, people that go through Ibogaine um, assisted therapy, you know, and they get mm-hmm. detox and, and they're able to, you know, get their get their lives back. But they some people so maybe drink or smoke cannabis. And depending on the way these studies are conducted, that might not be considered a successful you know, uh, recovery, but like, dude, they were shooting heroin and meth before, right? So it's like, we exactly. need to reevaluate what a successful outcome is in a lot of these, a lot of these circumstances as well. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. I can't even imagine what, and so I'm, I mean, I'm fairly young and I, I won't even pretend that I've been part of the struggle for the last 40 years that some of the other more pioneers in the field have been. And right. I, I can't even imagine some of the the outcomes that they've had to watch happen over the last 30 years with patients really benefiting and then to not be able to help people with it. Like the concept right. of you have this thing that you're actively seeing is helping and you just have to right. keep fighting people to try and convince them of it. And I would imagine that's especially the case for, you know, Ibogaine treatments and other things for opioid addiction. And I don't know, I just, I, I have so much respect for anyone who's already been in the yeah. field for a long time. And like, I've, I've kind of, I've been in natural products for a long time in that side of chemistry, which we all, we all study these things. Like this is of course what makes right. natural interesting is a lot of the psychedelics and those kinds of compounds. But then you learn pretty quickly that there, there are things you're not allowed to really look at. And, um, but I haven't been as active on the, the medical and the patient side. And, you know, now that we're actively trying to bring drugs to market and work through more clinical trial kinds of things, there are these other groups who have been doing that for a long time and they haven't even been able to then help people with it. So I imagine it's got to be extremely frustrating, but I'm I'm glad and I hope I'm hopeful that this wave, even though there's been a couple waves, will be will be different and that we'll all recognize the necessity, especially with the pandemic. I mean, everyone. I don't think anyone's going to deny that this has been extremely difficult on everyone around the world, mentally, physically, you name it. So, yeah, I think yeah. it's catalyzed, you know, uh, mm. the progress that psychedelic medicine has made because it's come at such an important precipice in our evolution, you know? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so it, it's really now or never like this needs to happen and we need to do it right. We can't be like, you know, we, we've learned from the 70s and sand, we're not Sandoz sending out acid to everyone that wants it, you know, uh, exactly. we've come a long way. Yeah. And we learned from the cannabis industry and in that, you know, I, I believe that there is absolutely a role for these compounds to be used in mm-hmm. psychospiritual growth and personal development beyond just treating illness in the clinic, you know. But absolutely. for now, for now I, I think it's really important that the movement 
is a medicalization, you know, um, mm -hmm. because that let, let's let the data come first. Let's let this let's let these clinical trials unfold. Let's see what these do in cancer patients and addicts, because like we already know it's going to blow your mind. So let's have, it, <laughs> let's have the empirical studies to finish corroborating this. And, and then that will be there. It will Absolutely. be there and it yeah. will be published in the National Library of Medicine and then we can go from there. E even in this time where there's so much uh, conspiracy and there's so much <laughs> doubt about the state of science, you know, luckily uh, the, the results just happen to be so groundbreaking and so <laughs> significant. There is no, uh, you know, there's not that much debate about its efficacy or safety right. and that's really remarkable. You know, yeah, uh, for sure. So, <laughs> wow, we really needed something like this to come along, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it'd be really cool for, you know, I mean, I, I can kind of imagine being, a, you know, having been a clinical biologist myself, but what does an average day look like for you? Are you in the lab? Are you, you know, with your team of teams of researchers? Are you guys in a mixture of everything and boardrooms? What does it look like? <laughs> yeah. So between myself and our the CEO, Chris, that, we're kind of everywhere all the time. Yeah. Um, we, you know, this morning I was in the lab actively trying to uh, look at some of the results for uh, some of our formulation experiments we're doing to try and help. Um, we're really working on finding better ways to bring some of the, the more DMT type scaffolds into the body. They don't have great, um, they don't do well in your body, <laughs> basically. Yeah, when you take right. Sometimes, so uh, finding better ways to do those things. So yeah, this morning and part of yesterday, working on some of that. Um, in the lab, we have a lot of professors and other collaborators at the university that we are talking to that are gonna do animal studies for us, but also some of the computational work and some of the other things that we're working on. Um, we have, we're actively trying to you know, raise funds to do all of these research sorts of things. So it's usually us also trying to talk to investors or um, our board or other people as well. Um, we do have some medical advisors. We're still preclinical right now. So we're probably not as active as we will be maybe in a year on some of that aspect of it. Um, but yeah, it's a lot of multitasking, I would yeah. say, sometimes. Um, but no, we, we, I don't know, we, we love to talk about how when we made the leap and jumped into it and said, we're going to do it, we're going to start the company and we're going to really change sort of this whole um, side of the industry and help people recognize what really needs to happen, just especially since of what we saw kind of in cannabis. Um, everything's fallen into place so well along the way that you'd think because of you know COVID and everything hitting that we would just be totally drained and suddenly not have any hope in the world for some things, but somehow every, every step has just, it's fallen so easily that it's hard to say we weren't meant to do this. Yeah. I mean, you know, there's some moments you have, and that's honestly been the last year for us. Um, it's, it's, everything has, has gone so smoothly. And I, I say smoothly, it's hard, obviously it's not sure. like it's easy, but um you just see these things happen and it's hard to not think that that's what you're supposed to be doing. So we've had a really good run of it so far. And I don't, I don't see that changing anytime soon. We've got, 
We now have the National Institute of Drug Abuse, as well as um, some of the, we applied for some grants with NIH, and we have quite a few different people who've reached out to collaborate and try to test a lot of our stuff. So that's the part that I love. This The industry, I really hope it stays this way, but everyone really wants to collaborate and help each other as much as possible, because that's the only way that it's going to really be what it's meant to be. So I, I hope it stays that way. But um yeah, sorry, I also tangented, but I was trying to think about my days, and I'm like, my days are always different. <laughs> yeah, that's really cool. That's that's so exciting, yeah. you know. And definitely from from myself, definitely for the team at Microdose, a huge heartfelt congratulations because that's amazing. You know? uh, I, I hope the progress continues the way it has been, and I I definitely understand that feeling of being in a, in a flow state, you know, it just reminds yeah. me of when we were filming that documentary in Mexico and, you know, I'd actually met Patrick and Connor um, the, for the first time during that trip, you know, and it was just such an incredibly packed itinerary. I mean, we were on mountaintops um, and sunrise <laughs> to film and then doing sunset shoots and then traveling in between and just doing everything, you know, it was wild mm -hmm. uh, and everything just flowed. You know, like it yeah. really, it was a uh, higher order there of some sort. It just seemed, yeah. it seemed like it was meant to happen, and that's cool uh, because a lot of that, a lot of people in this industry now seem to be experiencing that, and yeah. I think it's a collective uh, meant to happen phenomenon for psychedelic medicine and the people pioneering the charge. You know, so I hope we all keep riding yeah. that way forward because that's, that's pretty, too, yeah. <laughs> Pretty, pretty incredible. Uh, so I think a really cool point would be to talk about the delivery systems for DMT. I know that lately there's been some discussion, I don't know if I talked to Chris about this, about IV infusion DMT. Yeah. Um, maybe in a, in a similar fashion that ketamine infusions are administered in a clinic. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a little bit more about that? Because on the surface, that seems pretty radical to a lot of people, you know? Yeah, and I so I will say that's not our approach, <laughs> um, and that's mostly because, again, if there was anything I learned designing a lot of different formulations and different types of products for patients is, it's it's hard to convince people to do something that they have never done before mm -hmm. and is too intimidating or too different. If that makes right. sense. And right, there's right. always going to be the patients who are open to it. There's always going right. to be the situations where if someone's especially in an end of life state or something, sure. absolutely, that's going to be uh, an option. But I think if you're really trying to target sort of the everyday person and trying to help sort of the collective mental health state of just your average person, it's really tough to convince them to want to be poked and prodded and have to deal with some of those things. So, sure. and it's also hard to convince them to lay in the room for six hours and be able to afford it as well. Like that's not right. always the most affordable option. And I think that's true for anything IV or anything that requires you to be actively with um, a healthcare worker all the time. It's, it's extremely difficult. Um, and, so our, our method, I would say, is more on the formulations that someone can use at home or someone can use or, you know, maybe they do have to go to the doctor to actually receive. But 
it would be something that they're maybe not as intimidated by as they might be for something like IV. Um, right. Unfortunately, I can't like talk in super detail about some of it, but um, we mostly target, we have some oral delivery methods that we're working okay. on. That's not for DMT um, because right. that just doesn't really work well. Um, but for the DMT side, we're really focusing more on, well, what are other ways that you can deliver into the body that might not require oral delivery or a needle? And, you know, there's some groups that might be working on, it's really anything that helps it get into the bloodstream faster like so that it's not. Having, is that, is that a way so that's possible? That's what, that's an option. Yeah. You can do various wow. sorts of transdermal things, but also, um, I mean, some groups might be working on sublingual or something that goes straight to the bloodstream in some way. Yeah. And I also don't know if, if anyone's working on it. I, we're not working on this part, but I don't know, because obviously ketamine is the nasal spray and there are also options for sort of nebulizers and nasal, nasal sprays and um, maybe inhalers or something along those lines. Um, those are is, also- Is there no way for the industry, for the, the medical side of the industry to utilize like a vape pen because those have come a long way? So I think you'll have to be able to convince the FDA that it will always be a consistent dose with a that's very, very small margin of error. That's the issue. Right, that's what I was that's even an issue with nebulizers too. I mean, they're difficult, right. it's, not, it's not easy. And so hence the inhaler, it's sort of, and those aren't perfect either. I mean, the margin of error, right. if we had developed some cannabinoid inhalers and there's still a decent mm -hmm. chunk of error sometimes between right. the dosing on them. So it really comes down to optimizing the dose, keeping a narrow window of error, and trying to find the best ways to deliver some of these things so that patients aren't too scared of it or too intimidated by it. Um, but I think so. I don't know if you've heard of a dihydroergotamine. It's a it's been actually on the market since the 40s. Dihydroergotamine. I mean, I know ergot's the, what they derive LSD oh, yeah. this from. Is, so dihydro. Yeah, that's exactly what, what, what is it. So it, I mean, it's a farm. It's a pharmaceutical. It's been on the market since the 40s. Um, oh. I have. I made a big table. So there was the pharmaceutical drug development con uh, consortium last week and sure. uh, I gave a talk there and I had finally put together sort of this big table of all of the, the drugs that have been on the market and FDA approved since um, the forties. And that's one of them. And it's uh, that one they did as IV options or um, just in the muscle tissue sort of thing. Right. Like Yes, and there were some of those options, but they did have a nasal spray of that. But the bioavailability is also kind of the issue. I think it was only 30% bioavailable. And right. I think that's one of the biggest difficulties for any of the psychedelics for a lot of groups is, I like to say, it's just because the molecules we're working with were found in the 1900s doesn't mean that our technology and formulations have to be. <laughs> we've, made it, we've made it a long way. <laughs> you know, we've yeah. Yeah. And there's a lot of formulation options now and drug delivery options and things that we should all be looking into and really working on um, with some of these compounds because that, I mean, if you just blend it up and throw it into a capsule and then have 20% bioavailability, then 80% of your drug is going down the drain and right. it's not helping anyone. Right. It's just bleeding potentially. You know? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so I think that's probably our biggest focus is really on the different formulations and how can we make 
these things more bioavailable? How can we, um, without really changing their properties, which is tough. I'm not going to say it's going to be like the easiest pursuit, but I don't think it's going to be as hard as some might think it is. So. That's super fascinating. And mm -hmm. the delivery of these compounds is a huge, uh, a lot of, a lot of attention is being focused on this right now. I know with mm -hmm. ketamine, just for example, that's a, uh, that's a difficult one to administer at home. You know, uh, IV yeah. and IM is fantastic. Uh, but, but once mm -hmm. we go out of that, it really degrades, you know, uh, the nasal spray yeah. <laughs> varies way too widely. The sublingual trochees are all over the place. Um, so I know Bexon Biomedical is one biotech firm that, you know, we, we collaborated with and they sponsored some of our events. They're mm -hmm. coming up with a trans, well, it's an infusion that is kind yeah. of like how diabetics get insulin, you know, oh, okay. uh, yeah. which is a really fascinating way, but it's just already attached to your, you know, uh, skin. You don't have yeah. to use a needle every time. And I think that's super fascinating. Plus the integration of digital therapeutics. So then the, as it's being infused, you know, you, that, that data is being tracked and monitored and the rate of infusion and everything by the phone and the physician could ideally alter that rate uh digitally yeah. you know which is wow that's super <laughs> wild you know like talk about yeah. talk about that uh, yeah that, that would that's be really interesting i mean my mind always goes to the uh the injectable sort of thing for uh, birth control was a thing for a little while yeah. like i remember um, that had sort of a controlled dosing and you had it just kind of under your skin and your arm um, for, I never did it, but I had friends around or people around me that had done those things. And I, I mean, I'm not really sure what happened to some of that, but the, that was all infusion kind of based where it was sort of a consistent right. kind of gradual thing. But yeah, it would be interesting if they could actually control it from a different location. I wonder yeah, I wonder how, I don't know, I wonder how the, the FDA and others might like that option where I, I would assume you'd still have to at least have like a meeting with them one-on-one -on -one or something and make yeah, sure probably. they were actively part of, you know, the process without necessarily just having a button far away and pushing. Right, 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 right. right. Um, yeah, but I think there's yeah. going to be a lot, yeah. And I, I mean, ideally, and this is, you know, who knows how far down the road, but I'd say if I had any sort of aspiration is it would be the idea that anyone who's ever had a headache knows that they don't just have one headache, take a set of medicine and they never get a headache again in their life. Like you're, you're going to get, you're going to get headaches. It's going to happen. And we have things you can go to, to help you with those moments. And I would love to see being able to reach people early enough in life that when you start to have those moments, rather than us just sort of shoving it aside and then it builds up. And then when you're in your forties, you have suicidal ideation because you've never coped with any of those things. Maybe if we reach people early enough during some of those times, it can almost be something they can go to in very low or small dosing on their own to kind of say, okay, I need to get through this moment and then move on. And um, I don't think it's going to be that straightforward for all types of issues, obviously, <laughs> but right, right, right. specifically, especially with um, early signs of depression and anxiety and that sorts of thing. I mean, it starts really early and um, I mean, women are more likely to end up with depression and it's always starts earlier for us because we reach puberty earlier. And so, um, I mean, it's, 
it's something that happens pretty early on. And we also need to not look at it as, okay, well, we'll start treating you for depression when you're 65. Like right. it, needs to, it needs to be recognized that this is a lifelong sort of mental health endeavor, but yeah. Yeah, yeah no, I, I agree. I think it's an interesting uh, moment to just ask you where you think the industry kind of started from five to 10 years ago and how you've seen it evolve, you know, uh, over the last decade and in your time and experience uh, working in cloud rating in it. Yeah, so I, again, I'm, I'm fair, I consider myself fairly new to the scene. Um, mm -hmm. I think it's been, I think I've only been directly involved for about three years, uh -huh. um, mm -hmm. but have had, you know, other people around me actively doing things and talking to me about it. But I would say the biggest shift, because most of my experience was in directly in the cannabis industry. Um, and then now I would say, at least for from the psychedelic standpoint, I think initially you had a little bit of, okay, it's like the cannabis industry. So let's all throw money at it. And we're all just going to treat it the same way. And we're just going to make a lot of money and keep kind of bouncing around. I'm already seeing that start to die off a little bit, which I'm thankful of. Right. All that yeah, starting. People are starting to realize it's a very long-term play. It's lucrative, right. but it's, I, drug development takes a while. Yeah, and I, I saw that starting to sort of initially happen, and I, it made me a little bit nervous because that was a big thing in the cannabis industry. Um, but it, I'm glad to have seen that sort of, that's starting to evolve kind of and trending away from that, which I'm, I'm glad about that. Um, but also I would say that, what you mentioned about even just cannabis and how that's um, viewed now. You had kind of that same moment you see with a lot of pharmaceuticals of here's this one thing we're gonna be able to throw at everything and it's gonna solve all of our problems. Right. And marketing and sales made that so that people really believed it in that right. industry for a long time, for years now. And I think just in the last couple of years, you started to see the swing towards, okay, well, maybe it's time we really started to understand what's actually happening there because we're also seeing random adverse side effects with some patients and their medications when they're on this, or we're starting to see over time their you know tolerance is building up too much, or you have you have a lot of other factors. And I would say that that was probably the biggest shift, at least while I was there, was going from, well, we're just gonna kind of throw it at everything to, oh wait, maybe, this should be a little bit more specific and we should actually understand what those things are doing. Um, I, I don't, I really don't know where I see all of that going recreational versus medical and that whole sort of argument, I guess. I personally, when it comes to psychedelics and cannabis, I, as a researcher, I watched it happen with cannabis where the research started to fall to the wayside and started to become a second sort of secondary thing. And everyone really was pushing more for recreational, but kind of pretending that they cared about the other side. <laughs> and <laughs> that that really killed research for a long time yeah. because it was, well, no, we don't need that. We just want it to be out there and we want people to have it. Um, and it's because sometimes, unfortunately, scientists are almost viewed like a threat. And I think that that's something I hope changes too. And I, I mean, I, I felt that and saw it even in, in cannabis and I'm hoping that psychedelics because it does require so much research really to understand what's happening is that that will be respected and it, it will hopefully kind of maintain that trend. I think we'll see, I guess, even with yeah. like the functionalized mushroom side, obviously that's kind of 
take another jump. But I mean, I even remember, what was it like? I feel like it was maybe like the nineties when all of a sudden it was like natural food stores and herbal medicine and all those things sort of had this like huge spike and everyone was running to the store to buy golden seal and echinacea. And that was going (laughs) to, that was going to solve all the problems too, you know? So I think it's happened a couple of times with natural products, at least like just uh, herbal medicine and that sort of side. Um, And I think that's the only way we're going to get through it is if everyone sort of recognizes that there's no one size fits all and there's no, silver bullet and we all kind of have to work work on everything together and try to find what works best for everybody personalized medicine is going to be hard that's where i've seen the biggest shift pharmaceutically i would say is there's just a huge focus more on personalized medicine and i think that's important but it's it's a a very difficult pursuit so i i think that psychedelic medicine is very much the next personalized medicine, you know, yeah. we were just talking about, um, you know, you're talking about the entourage effect of the receptors. I, I bring that detail up to talk about how it can be personalized in a, a biochemical or, or a neuropharmacological level, um, but mm-hmm. also the just the different flavors of psychedelic compounds, the, the differences of the experiences, uh, how long, how, how DMT is five to 10 minutes versus psilocybin <laughs> is six to seven hours, you know, um, yeah. and then and how all of that will, will look is just, uh, I mean, it doesn't get more personalized than that. You know, we, we thought maybe yeah. it's going to be, I'll give you this pill and you get that pill, but no, it's, it's so much more, <laughs> nuanced right and and just like psychedelics are also different and and then we're now having these derivatives that are being formed they're all going to have their own personalities and their own benefits for some and drawbacks for others you know um in in that same way it's a good thing that there's so much variation because look how we're applying it to humans after all yeah (laughs) right so i i hope that there is just as much variety in the in the medication is, and, and the therapeutic potential as, as there is diversity in our species, you know. Um, and I can see why there's a lot of pushback in certain aspects of that. And it's, it's because from a sales and marketing perspective, that's not an ideal route. You, you want something that can just cure everyone's problem because then you don't have to try as hard to target a whole lot of different audiences and different kinds of people. You target kind of this one entity and then that one entity is everyone. So then you're benefiting hugely from a commercialization standpoint. Right. It's, it's much more difficult to have to cater to a lot of different types of people and places and backgrounds and cultures. And then on top of that, create a very diverse product line for all of those different types of people. And I, so I can see from a business perspective why that would be intimidating and not <laughs> ideal. But unfortunately for medicine, that's going to be ideal. And so I think it's going to take a huge shift in treating medicine, not like a business. And that's a hard ask. That's a very, very hard ask in a capitalistic society like the United States. And um, it's it's going to require some pretty big shifts. But I think that if you really want to treat patients the way that the humans are meant to be treated, that's going to be a requirement, not a secondary option. And, you know, 
so, I, I love this interview because you bring up so many ideas and it's hard to pick the one I want to talk about most, which is awesome. That's why I do this, you know? It's, it's great. Yeah. I was a uh, philosophy teacher before I was a chemist, so sometimes I like to think have too. So much in, we have so much in common because uh, I, I got my biology and philosophy major as well. Uh, oh, nice. From the University yeah. of Miami before getting my master's in, in biotechnology. So that intersection of medical ethics and just ethics and science. In yes. general, you know, is uh, my first blog I started was biolitics, you know, biology, politics. Oh, and, that's yeah, awesome. And I started talking about, I started creating cannabis content. And that's how I accidentally got into the cannabis industry. And I do another. And here we are, you know. So, yeah. You know, the, the world of science media never ceases to, to amuse and entertain and inspire me. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, yeah. so that's that that's really fascinating and that some of the things that came to mind um from from what you were just talking about I'm going to have to stop for a second because all yeah. those things I they slipped my mind. Uh <laughs> now they're trying to so I'm going to put another note for 11 o'clock. Okay, give me a second. I was thinking of uh we were talking about like the diversity and how, oh okay, I remember now. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> so yeah a lot of uh what you said brought up a lot of ideas you know and we were talking about shifting paradigms around um like money and uh mm -hmm. capital markets around psychedelics uh it's really interesting because a lot of people you know say that the short-sighted view of big pharma and it is short-sighted to think that like oh we're not going to be having someone on a drug that they're going to take every single day for the rest of their life, then we're losing money. If they're only going to take it two or three times, then they're not labeled as having PTSD anymore. Where's the upside for us? Okay, but the thing is, the upside is massive for all of us. That's the thing. Right. You know? it, it, the the long-term benefit of this is that person's going to go back to work. They're going to make more money you know, for the economy, for themselves. They're going to spend more money. Uh, and, yeah. and that's just, and they're going to be healthier. So healthcare costs will go down. Uh, and, and more important than right. them buying more and spending more and all, and all that is, is the fact that they're going to, they're going to be happier and more fulfilled people. There's going to be more human innovation. So the landscape of how we understand capitalism is really going to change. And I understand how the people that really enjoy the status quo, and let's be honest, <laughs> that's a very slim margin of people because the majority of us aren't okay for things to change, you know? Um, the, besides them, like, yeah, a lot is going to shift because psychedelics by their very nature make us less materialistic, you know? And if that threatens yeah. the very fabric of our capitalistic society, we have to understand from abundance comes abundance. There will be new yeah. economies. There will be new ways for us to share and exchange wealth for, for a whole host of new ideas and creative pursuits. You know, the thing yeah. is, the other side's way brighter, and and there's just a few people in that margin that can't are not willing for us to undergo that that transformation. But luckily yeah. for you know people like you and and the, and the people that have been helping pioneer this renaissance from the very beginning, uh, I I think that that we have a fighting chance. <laughs> you know. I mean, yeah, I hope so. It's, it is tough. Like you said, you do question a lot of things that already make very specific people a lot of money and asking someone to give up a very privileged lifestyle that they know works for them is hard. I mean, who, who wants to be told, Hey, you know how you've been living in paradise all of your life. We're going to take that away. 
And right. we promise you we're going to give you another paradise, but you just don't know it yet. It's, right. I mean, that's a big risk, right? It's kind of like, wait a right. second, I know this is great. So why do I want that? And I, so I, I get it from a, I don't get it from a personal because I don't live that life, but, right. but I understand it more on, like a, <laughs> more on an empathetic perspective. I, I, I understand it and sure. I know it's a lot to ask and it's, it's a lot to ask of a human being in general. And I think that the world sort of that you discuss is a much more long-term sustainable type of world and environment but it is really hard to see if someone hasn't really seen it before. Like, I feel like if you had just described what you talked about to a lot of indigenous or native populations, they would just be like, well, yeah, duh. Like, why, why are you telling me this? This is, yeah. that's, that's life. But how, how for, is, yeah, but for us, because we've sort of, we've, we've taken on the path of kind of advancement to a level of almost just unsustainable ego and hubris that it's, it's unfortunately blinding and it's, it's very blinding. And I, I don't know how you totally fix that, but I also think that maybe we're from generations that will start to want that, that other option, you know, and recognize that what we're doing now is not sustainable. And I think that some of the pharmaceutical, big pharma companies are recognizing that. I wouldn't say all of them. There are, there are a few that are starting to sort of, turn gears and they are looking into more of the neuroscience and they are trying to do some of those things, um, but they are the minority. And I don't know why, because the millions and millions of dollars a year that go into cancer research without really much of an outcome medically right. is, is stifling to me. Like right. when I say medically, I mean, um, there's been a lot of medical advancements, but not on the pharmaceutical drug front. Right. There have right, right. Not chemically, not a lot to really come out of it that helps um, as much as maybe surgeries and other types of technological advancements for cancer. Sure. And yet they're pouring money, you know, into right. those things. But again, that's, that's late stage life kind of treatment rather than, and maybe if they did look at it as from the, well, we're really trying to help treat the human condition throughout your lifetime, then, you know, maybe they could see that as a potential longer term benefit, you know, quote unquote for themselves. Um, but yeah, it's again. It's just going to take a big shift, unfortunately. Yeah, no, yeah. I, I absolutely, I absolutely agree. And there's so, yeah. there's so much to consider when forward in, in this industry. So that brings me to one of my questions. We touched on it briefly. What are some things we need to avoid, you know, uh, moving forward? And uh, what are some le some powerful lessons we need to draw from the '60s and '70s to make sure that everything unfolds uh, correctly and for the people's best interest this time? Yeah, that's a tough question. <laughs> um, and that's only because I think there's there's always going to be a lot of things that you'd like to. Um, but I guess to think of the big things that we should at least be conscious of while we're moving through it is, again, that concept that there's no one size fits all. There's no silver bullet. Um, keeping that in mind kind of all the way through that, you know, these things are going to take time. Um, I think we've We've learned a lot about drug discovery in general. We, there's been a lot of sort of ups and downs throughout drug discovery and natural products, especially for if anyone's working with the actual uh, plants or fungi, fungi or um, other natural sources, 
is to really keep in mind that that's extremely difficult to keep consistent. Um, I think that really has to be kept in mind, especially for the functional mushroom space and some of those things. Yeah. Um, I hope that especially through the cannabis industry and some of the dietary supplement and nutraceuticals work that they keep that in mind and recognize that if you want some, if you want it to be more of that sort of over the counter recreational kind of option at extremely low doses, maybe for um, the biohacking of the IT industry. Right. right, um, right that's right, one, right. That's one thing, but that's a very different thing to me than when you're really trying to treat someone with suicidal ideation or you're trying to treat someone with schizophrenia. Like these are very different scenarios. And I, I really hope everyone keeps that in mind as well, that I think those two worlds can coexist. They, they coexist now for pharmaceuticals. I can go and buy aspirin anytime I want, but I can't go and buy really intense migraine medications like dihydroergotamine or right. other types of things. I have to go to a physician for that. And I think that all of cannabis, psychedelics, all of these things, they, they could potentially have sort of that over-the-counter option, but that it should be treated very differently than the things that are going to be medically necessary for a lot of people. And that's one hope, is that maybe we can have these two worlds that recognize each other's existence, um, but that also don't feel like the other is just a threat to the other one, that yeah. they, they're both necessary. Um I also think that, hmm, there's a whole lot, especially on the psychiatry side. I Again, that's not my background, but sure. I there's a lot in that area that I think we've learned over decades and decades of um, the fact that there's a lot of different cultures. And I mean, let's be real, women. I mean, who really wants to try and deal with our hormonal changes throughout our life? Everybody, everybody just kind of ignores it. And they're like, that sort of exists over there, but we don't really want to touch right. it. Um, same with different cultures and different backgrounds. And I think that we've we've learned enough to know that our clinical trials should not be neglecting these people. Like we should not be having clinical trials where it's 80 percent white men. And I don't say that in a derogatory way by any right. means. It, I just, that's just what it is. And it we have women are 50% of the population. I understand the argument that maybe you're not in an area where there's a large black or Latinx community. Right. That's one thing, but women are 50%. Yeah. <laughs> We're not hard to find. <laughs> We're everywhere. I mean, when we're, you know, the ones kind of maintaining the human race right now. So I think that... Um, <laughs> this is probably one of the best moments of the podcast. 11-11. Good to know. <laughs> I, I just... I, I, I agree. We've come a long way, and we, we know these things. We're aware of them, and we can no longer keep kind of pretending they don't exist. And I guess that's my hope, is to stop trying to sweep things under the rug, stop pretending things don't exist, and to really bring it out and respect it. And I think if you bring it out with a lot of respect and care, there's no reason to fear it. And there's no reason to kind of treat it like it's this taboo thing. And um, it's gonna require a lot of education. It's gonna require a lot of collaboration, but I think it's entirely possible. And as you mentioned earlier, 100% necessary at this point. Yeah. We've just, we've reached that point, so. Those are some of my answers, I guess. Yeah, that's really, that's really interesting. Um, I know we're running low on time, but I have to bring this up and get your insight on it. Uh, <laughs> it's it's interesting the demographics they've been conducting clinical trials on. 
for mm -hmm. psychedelic medicine. Uh, it's not an accident. I don't think that MAPS and some of these uh, huge organizations that have been pioneering this charge have been conducting these trials, PTC trials, for example, and stuff in, mm -hmm. in veterans and military first responders. Um, yeah. Some people say, well, some people, I wrote an article <laughs> from, from Microdose voicing this opinion pretty, pretty explicitly that uh, part of that strategy was to help uh, this medicine win bipartisan political support, you know, uh, so yeah. it really does yeah. cross the hurdle, you know, because cannabis mm -hmm. is very divided. Uh, there's not yeah. much conservative support for it, but when you see the impact this has on veterans, uh, mm -hmm. I, I understand why the, the right side of the aisle is, is interested as well. Um, but on the same token, like you talk about with these studies, it's not like PTSD only affects veterans or soldiers. Uh, right. It's not like, you know what I'm saying? So, so how do you reconcile that as a scientist? How do you, do you, do you hope for us to just cross this hurdle? Do you think it was maybe a good idea to use this strategy and then we should just expand the trial participants right. and demographics as we move forward or just what are your thoughts on this in general? So at least when it comes to the veterans, um, full disclosure, my dad is a Navy vet from oh, Vietnam cool. War, so I'm already a little bit biased, I guess. Yeah, thank you. But, but that also raises a lot of questions for how he developed his dementia. Um, sure. And I think that, so one of our medical um, advisors on First Silera is also a veteran from the Air Force. Um, and so we do actively try to look at that community. And I do think there's some obviously bipartisan uh, benefit there, but I what I also feel is that you're targeting a community that is largely neglected, even though the government likes to pretend that it's not neglecting them. Right. And so I, I think that it's it's also a huge philanthropic play. So I for someone like MAPS, I, I wouldn't see it as only, you know, maybe a political option, but also this is a largely just sort of forgotten almost kind of group as well. We love to yeah. go out and have parades. We love to wave our flags and say that we love veterans, but then, there's a huge chunk of the population that doesn't believe in violence or war or any of those things anymore. So they can, you know, condemn anyone who shoots a gun and, right. and then they kind of just pretend they don't exist until it's veterans day again. And then they're like, yay, we love veterans. And so it's, it's a, that for me at least is a very complex group of individuals that I can't even imagine the level of, trauma they must have, not just PTSD from being overseas, but coming right. home and constantly having to deal with this picking and prodding from all these different angles and sides. And, and then they're almost just expected to still be conservative Republicans at the end of the day. And it's, yeah. but who, how are they benefiting from anyone like at all? Right. And so, um, I, I don't know. It's, it's a very, very, <laughs> torn group, I would say, of individuals. And I, so I'm biased, unfortunately, but I also think um, MAPS is one of the few that I know one of their clinical trials soon, because I actually questioned them on that last week when they gave a talk. I was like, hey, yeah. when are you going to start putting women in there? And yeah. uh, Karine DeBoer there, she works there and she was like, oh no, actually our next one is 50-50. And I was just like, that was Yay, such a good day. Yeah. And so I know that they're actively trying to pursue those things. Um, but I don't know. I, I think it's a smart play personally. Yeah. Because me too. I think it's just, I think it's a smart play for a game, if you want to look at it as part of a game, 
but it's also a smart play just in general, because that's a huge population that deserves attention that doesn't really get it. And um, so I, I think it's, it's a great um, specific, you know, target to maybe have, but I also think that there's a lot of other groups that deserve it. And so for me, Mm -hmm. um, a big thing is, so in Tampa Bay, you know, there's, we do have a lot of other cultures here. There's a lot of diversity here. Um, I did not grow up around that. I grew up in Sarasota, just an hour South where, I mean, it's pretty predominantly one demographic down there. And um, I I think when I moved to Tampa, it was a huge sort of culture shock for me to think that only an hour away from me, there was suddenly people from, you know, East and West and Central Asia and Africa. And then you have all of the like different communities and we have a big Cuban population, Puerto Rican populations. I mean, it's everything. And it was like, oh, this is great. Like, I loved it. And I thrive in that. But I I understand that some people don't. But there's a huge amount of PTSD and other mental health associated with the idea of just being an underrepresented group and population. Like your entire life is PTSD in my mind. Right, right, absolutely. I mean, that's what a lot of some of the even, you know, the big political movements over the summer and Black Lives Matter, all these things in my mind, I'm like, that's all trauma, all of it. And this is the culmination of just trauma and PTSD that's probably in their genes at this point from just centuries of issues that's coming out. And so there's a lot of populations that deserve that attention that aren't necessarily, you know, white. (laughs) And so they really need to be represented in a lot of the trials and things they're doing because there's also, so I have a really close friend of mine, he's Indian and he won't even, he didn't even want to like reach out when he was having some issues to specific types of maybe psychologists or therapists or that sort of thing, because he knew they wouldn't understand his cultural background and they wouldn't understand his upbringing unless he found someone in his mind that was looked like him and right. had own cultural upbringing. And I had to almost like really coach him through the idea that there are other cultures who deal with like, that exact same thing. Like he, you know, it doesn't have I to mean, only I totally I can understand how he would. Right. Think that, you know? <laughs> and yeah, yeah. so he's a first generation American. And so, and he's yeah. dealt with a lot. And I think listening to some of his stories, I'm just like, Oh my God, like I, I, I couldn't even imagine having grown up in some of those instances. And I think that um, that's going to be a big deal too. There's a lot of people who want, they want their specific sort of, culture or understanding or mental state to be recognized in some way that's very specific to what they're feeling. And that's going to be hard. Yeah. Yeah. You totally hit on so many great (laughs) points. uh, I was going to ask you about inclusion, you know, how can we be more inclusive in this space? And, and you, you hit on a lot of great points just about that. Exactly. It was a really great piece earlier this year. Uh, actually, I think just a few weeks ago in the Washington Post, you know, psychedelic medicine is going mainstream. How can, who, who is it really going to reach, you know? And it was a fantastic, right. fantastic piece and talked about, you know, set and setting is so, is so important. And we're talking about these therapists and it matters. It matters the skin color of your therapist and, and what paintings <laughs> are up in the, the room, you know, and like uh, it, all, of, all of that matters because that's the, the experience is so personal to mm-hmm. so many people, you know? And so, yeah, I mean, we talk about inclusion. 
uh, now that I've kind of implicitly asked this question, we talk about inclusion, it extends, extends to the demographic that we study, but also the clinicians and the, the frontline workers that, that we hire uh, to, yeah. the, to treat these people and, and mm -hmm. everything in between. And yeah, and it's going to be hard because, I mean, unfortunately, at the end of the day, our whole population of the United States is not equal on every single diverse front. And it's, right. it's hard for us to find, you know, the more obscure cultures to have representation all across the country as therapists, <laughs> you know, and right. I, I don't know, but it's the 21st century. We have technology. Like I can, if I could, <laughs> you, you can, you can put the face of whomever you want in the country to speak and be the voice for someone in a room That's true. without them having to be there. So right. some of the limitations that we might've had, we're still stuck sometimes in the same limitations people had 50 or a hundred years ago. And it, again, the compounds are from the 1900s, but we've come a long way. Right, right, right. <laughs> with them, so bring that like 21st century advancement into what we're taking from back then, and it's if anything that puts us in so much better of a position to bring these compounds to the world than anyone would have been 70 years ago. And it's such an amazing opportunity that I just don't. Why would we ever want to let it fall apart? Like, it's yeah. just, you got, we have to seize it. We have to. It's just, it's not an option. It's just not. Yeah. So. Yeah. I, I, so, so much our, our, our very existence and <laughs> progress and, you know, continuation uh, of, of life as we, well, hopefully not as we know it, but in you know? life, it all depends, you know, and it all depends on this, it seems like. And yeah, it, it's, it's really exciting to see this progress. It was so great to have you on the show today and yeah. to talk to you um, about, about everything. I always give my guests the last word. If you have a thought or sentiment you want to share with our audience uh, about you, about, you know, what's next to Sailor or just anything you'd like to share, uh, I, I'd love for you to be able to do that. And the floor is yours. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, I mean, no, it's been super fun because I I think I like the moments to be able to sit back and just really contemplate a lot of these things and what you're doing. And yeah, I guess that'll sort of be my end thought is the idea that this is a, a, a huge moment for everyone to step back and really take a look at the bigger picture and the bigger impact and to have a chance to when in your life could you say that you might be able to actually change the world? And right. I, think, I think we're there. And so I think that that's going to be a game changer. That's amazing. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jackie. I, I really yeah. appreciate it. Uh, I'm really looking forward to your talk at the Mushroom Conference in November. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> just, a, just a reminder to all, all our listeners that MushCon will be November 20th to the 22nd. Mm -hmm. Jackie will be there. I'll be there on a panel, too. Uh, we're, we're all really excited. So thank you so much. And thank you for coming on the show today. Uh, I have to be a little biased and say this was definitely one of my favorite episodes. You know, we've been speaking of inclusion. I've been looking for more awesome females in the space to, to speak to and to spotlight. So thank you so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And I can't wait to have you on again. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, it's been a blast. All right, thank you all so much. This has been another episode of the Sci-Fi Podcast. I'm your host, Garv Dubey, and we'll catch you next time. I was here with Jackie Salm of Cellular Biosciences. 
And uh, yeah, take care, everybody. We'll see you soon. Thanks for joining the Sci-Fi Series, brought to you by Microdose and The Conscious Fund. Visit our website at www.microdose.buzz.com.